Welcome to VSI, Variation, Selection, Inheritance, a podcast production of the National Science Foundation's Beacon Center for the Study of Evolution in Action. I'm Randall Hayes. Even after Stephen Colbert's Jesus Laid a Colorful Egg bit this week, I, for- I actually forgot that it was Good Friday and that I didn't have class today. So, I'm at the Green Bean Coffee House in downtown's Greensboro, musing over the way each of us cr- has to create his own private mythology in an attempt to organize the flood of sensory information. Was that little leaf shape in my drink an accident or a message? Or did my barista just see the Green Hornet movie and copy Cato's actions? Now I could easily just do the experiment and ask her, but maybe she doesn't know either. Most of the time, even in the age of Google, we don't know the answers to most of our questions. So we have to make up our own answers or find them in the works and words of other people. There are dozens of paintings on the walls here, probably the work of UNCG students from up the street. Which of those paintings speaks to me? Which ones get incorporated into my memory of this day? Or even into my collection, my own private view of how the universe works? There's one called Mystic by a kid named Garrett Scales, which I like quite a bit. I don't know that I like it $250 worth, But there definitely have been pieces that spoke to me so much that I needed to own them. Mostly books more than visual art, but that's me. Which elements do that for me, specifically? Which elements of an artistic piece appeal to large numbers of people and become popular? What even defines a cultural element? What is the unit of information? We're really now at the same point that Mendel and Darwin were at, before we knew exactly which molecules stored biological information. Was it protein? Was it nucleic acids? Something else? A hundred years ago, nobody knew, and the nature-nurture debate partly grew out of that lack of clarity about what information could be passed down. Likewise, today, we can see that something is being passed from person to person culturally, but we can't quantify it yet. We talk about artistic influences and leave it at that. There hasn't been a lot of work on this problem yet from an evolutionary perspective. But I'm reading some things by Jeffrey F. Miller now. Maybe I can get him on the show at some point. The history of religion is full of this kind of cultural exchange. Easter is just the most glaring example because the rough edges are still there. Rabbits and eggs are pagan symbols of fertility. If you're a market rep for the Catholic Church in pagan Europe, you can try to replace the existing symbols with your symbols of wafers and wine, but you'll more likely be successful if you just add your symbols on to theirs. Same thing happened with chocolate, which is a South American plant that wasn't even discovered by Christians until about a thousand years after the Catholic Church was founded. Cynics tend to paint this process as a deliberate fraud, like one of my favorite George R.R. Martin stories called The Way of Cross and Dragon about the Gospel of Judas. If you've never read it, you really should check it out. It won the Hugo in 1980. Which leads me to Martin's current and largest work, A Song of Ice and Fire, the series of books about which the new HBO TV series Game of Thrones is based. I'll say without embarrassment that I am a total fanboy of the series. I've read all the first four books. The fifth comes out of my birthday, which my wife already has covered. Thank you. Uh, I even have the graphic novel prequels about Sir Duncan the Tall and his squire called Egg. Coincidence? Hmm. So why do I love this series? Because it reads like history, with dragons as a bonus. 
While I'm waiting for the fifth book, I'm in the middle of Barbara Tuckman's A Distant Mirror, the calamitous 14th century, which describes France as a cauldron of destruction, where mercenary companies of deserted soldiers roam the countryside between epidemics of the Black Plague, making their living by looting. Sometimes a prince pays them to stay away. Sometimes a different prince pays them more to go back. From a distance, the dynamics are clear, not all that complicated. They're like the drug cartels of today. They want to be rich and powerful, and in a chaotic environment, especially while the king is being ransomed back to England, it's just easier to get those things by the sword and the gun than by working, especially when the peasants are not armed. That is what A Song of Ice and Fire is really about. Religion is only a minor factor in that series of books. There are multiple religions, and it's clear that all of them work, at least in the magical sense that their priests have real access to some kind of power. But religion is only an excuse to fight in this series. What the noble families and the religions are warring over is power and resources for themselves and for their allies. Now here's a topic that game theory and evolutionary science have dissected and digested. We know exactly how much genetic information any two relatives share. And that single fact allowed Trivers and Hamilton and all those folks to build quantitative models that made specific and testable predictions about when two relatives should cooperate and when they should compete. On the Game of Thrones website, if you click on the viewer's guide and go to the family trees, okay, yeah, I'll wait, pause the audio, get yourself set. Ready? No? Okay? Now? Yeah? Okay, good. What you'll see there is the Stark family tree. I chose that one because you can easily see how these relationships play out in the 14-minute exclusive preview of the show, which is also on the HBO website. First thing to notice is that Eddard Stark has five legitimate children and one bastard, Jon Snow. Snow is actually a semi-official title for bastards in the North. It's a legal distinction in this, in this society. John can't inherit any of his father's property. Eddard, being a law-abiding sort of guy, would not break that law, but he is conflicted about it because he loves his children more or less equally. His wife, the Lady Caitlin, clearly does not. She does not like even having John in the house, and despite the law, she regards him as a danger to her own five children. Makes sense, right? She shares no genes with Jon Snow. If the genders were reversed, if Jon were living with a stepfather instead of a stepmother, especially a stepfather who carries a sword, his life would be in serious danger. That's true in our society too, by the way. A stepchild is 40 times more likely to be murdered by a stepparent than a blood parent. As for the kids, a biologist would expect to see the most conflict between those pairs of children who need the same resources. Rob Stark and Jon Snow should be in conflict over everything. Girls, prestige, whatever. But at least in the books, they're both so sure that their father will follow the law that there's no point in fighting. Jon is also mature enough not to strike out at his brother in frustration due to the unfairness of the situation. Bran and Rickon are too young to fight with their older brothers. No point in fighting with someone who is definitely going to beat you. 
but Bran and Arya the Archer from the clip are nearly the same age and they share the same desires for excitement and their father's attention and they're less mature so they're at each other pretty much all the time. Arya also fights with her older sister Sansa but that's all almost an artifact of society and their mother Caitlin demanding that they compete on feminine criteria like sewing that Arya actually has zero interest in. Of course we're wired to intuit some of these relationship things so they seem kind of obvious in hindsight but that factoid about step parents being a huge risk factor for violent death pretty much overlooked for decades by the social services and criminal justice systems. They focused only on the proximity of family members, not on their degree of genetic relatedness. Theories shape the way we think, and they shape the policies we make. Would Caitlin have killed Jon Snow if the law had not been on her side? Or pushed Eddard to banish him to the wall, where he would only probably die? Well, it's fiction, so in one sense it doesn't matter. But we have laws and policies too. Millions of kids are in foster care. Are they placed with grandparents or cousins or other genetic relatives? Or are they placed with strangers? What are the screening procedures? Are they based on experimental science or on the private mythologies of the people in charge of making the placements? What is the best system? Personally, I don't know. I do know that a strong theory allows us to make predictions and then test them to find out. By the way, the barista's name was Esmeralda, and she had seen the Green Hornet. Okay, that's fiction. I never even asked her. But that's the way the story should have ended, right? That's all the time we have for this week. Tune back in. Next week I'll be talking to my grad school housemate, Corbin Jones, who just got tenure at UNC Chapel Hill. He is an honest-to-God evolutionary biologist who dabbles in neuroscience. Kind of my evil twin. Or maybe he's the good one and I'm the evil one. Who can tell? VSI is produced by me, Randall Hayes, at North Carolina Agricultural and Technical State University with support from the National Science Foundation's Beacon Center for the Study of Evolution in Action. Thanks for listening.